John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1087.MT1902, certificate number 22347, The Royal Touch. Who have you met in your life who, just from some combination of their gravitas of their position or their personal magnetism, really seem to have some kind of superhuman presence. Like, have you ever met that kind of a charismatic person? Um, I know you want to be that person in the room. Yeah. Is this like admitting that there's another alpha male? If you're like, I met Bill Clinton and he was like, Mr. Roderick. I never met Bill Clinton. Um, Because people say that about him. Yeah, right. He he just looks at you and then you're like, you and him are romping through the clouds. Uh, I met uh, uh, Susanna Hoffs. And, you know, she's very small. And she uh, travels with a very large bodyguard who's always there with her and has been for apparently decades. You said you know she's very small like I would. You I'm sure, no, that I did not. Like, if you showed me three Susanna Hoffs of different <laughs> scales and were like, point to the real Susanna Hoffs, I don't think I could do it. Uh, but she just is, uh, she has such a tremendous positive energy that, uh, and, it, you know, I would not have said during the 80s if I had made a list of the pop stars that I had massive crushes on. I don't think that I would have put Susanna Hoffs on the list um, because I, I think I, I would have said that she was a little cloying. Wow. Uh, coming in hot with your hot Susanna Hoffs taste. Yeah. I, but, but meeting her in person, I was just, uh, just flabbergasted. I see what why, a vibe she has. I see why all the kids in the marketplace say, hey, hey, oh, hey, oh. That's right. And, uh, and, and there you, couldn't, was the, you couldn't put your finger on why? Well, sandalwood and her pheromones. She's beautiful, but she's also she just has she's very positive. Uh, Even even not not just speaking, but she's very um, she's just very warm and friendly. And I mean, I guess if you have a three hundred pound bodyguard that follows you everywhere, you can afford to be warm and friendly. (laughs) Maybe I would be warmer and friendlier if I had a bodyguard. Is that the one thing keeping you from? Yeah, warmth and friendliness maybe and i had i had dinner with ted danson once and he wow. he was 
uh, also just extraordinary. Like, um, he seemed like he'd been carved out of a, a very rare South American wood <laughs> that you couldn't get anymore. Like he was, he the was, trade has been restricted on dancing wood. <laughs> he just, he just, he seemed kind of otherworldly. Yeah. I, you know, people often say this about politicians, but really it's gotta be actors and musicians. They're the ones who are most trained to do the little things with their looks and their voices and their bodies that really give off this kind of otherworldly power. Right. right? If you can walk like an Egyptian, I imagine it, it's not something everybody can do. You're not going to be running for Congress, but you've met a lot of uh, lofty people. Have you? Not really. I was trying to think what my answers to this would be. You've had dinner with Tom Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't Tom Hanks? He's uh, an everyman. He's just an everyman. He just doesn't give off a, like a heavy. It is kind of, it's it's kind of the unusual people who, uh, who strike me this way. Like, for example, Alex Trebek really has had kind of this air of authority and you're never quite sure how much of, you know, how much of you being impressed by Ted Danson is just your cultural memory of seeing him do larger than life things. You know, if you, if you just saw a normal guy in sales who kind of had that vibe, would you be like, wow, Gary, or, or is it like, no, I saw Ted Danson be Sam Malone and he was in body heat and, well, I've met two different Medal of Honor winners, and they were both total, uh, total goobers. Well, this is an interesting case, because they're extraordinary people, but not celebrities. Right. And they were just like what you would expect, like like kind of older goofballs who were like, ha, 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 well, one time, you know, one time I went over the ridge and took out four machine gun nests, but ever since then, I've been building model trains in my garage. And I mean, they were like charming, lovely people. But they had won the Congressional Medal of Honor. So you would think that they would... Probably more Congressional Medals of Honor than, say, Ted Danson has won. Right. Two more. Or I'm, each one of them had won one more I'm than not going to Google up the uh, awards and nominations part of his Wikipedia, but I'm going to guess several Emmys, no Congressional Medal of Honor. He's never going to get the EGOT come... Uh, <laughs> with, with Alex, it was very much... A lot of it was the persona you saw where he you had seen him be a, in a position of knowledge and authority. Yeah. 30 odd years. Well, I only saw and him the once uh, in person and he also looked like he was carved out of a, of, of a wood that's no longer available. Well, you saw him heavily made up for TV, right? It was a right. TV taping. Right. So and that, he was, he was sick was, too. So, right. Um, but uh, no, he very much had that kind of affect in person. And I, I had to ask myself how much of this is something he's really, giving off and how much is just what I bring to it from having loved him on TV. Yeah. I talked to Christopher guest a couple times and he's kind of famously eccentric. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, he has that kind of the noblesse oblige and to the manor born that comes with being royalty. Christopher guest, the <laughs> 23rd Earl of, uh, Brunswickshire or, yeah. or whatever he is. Right. And it, he very much conveys that. And there is kind of a, just an ethereal quality to, um, to meeting someone. And, and that was what made me think, I wonder if this is what Royal meeting royalty is like, because I've never met uh, a peer of the realm. I guess again, except for being on the shuttle bus with Christopher. (laughs) I've seen the queen wave from a car. Oh, you have. Yeah. Did I tell us on the show? We were touring Windsor castle once and they had whatever flag it flies at Windsor castle when the queen is there. Yeah. Is that the union Jack? I can't remember. Yeah. They put it all the way up. It switches to it. Yeah. It's at half mass. (laughs) Oh, we're so sad that she's gone. 
No one's watching uh, BBC Two in that weird pink bedroom. <laughs> no, they they switch to a different flag when she's in residence, and and as soon as she leaves, another. And we get there, right. and the Queen's flag is up, and we like nudge the kids, and we're like, "Hey, this is fun." Hey, look at that! And a bunch of, and then at some point, a bunch of cars and people are circulating in this central car park courtyard thing, whatever the breezeway is, where cars come and go, and uh, enough tourists are crowding at the windows that we figure out, oh, like look. she's probably leaving today. And sure enough, as we're walking out, I'm like, I'm going to go look. And I bring the kids over right as she kind of trundles into the car and she rolls down a window and she's got corgis and she like waves placidly as they pull out. That was one of her, 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 uh, top skills. Yes. It yeah. was, it was her number one, uh-huh. her number one skill probably. I mean, thanking, uh, residents of thanking workers at, uh, at textile mills. Right. A big thing that she did. Uh, complaining when they decommission her yacht. I, yeah. I I only know what Queen Elizabeth did through um through the crown TV movies. Yeah. yeah, I have met minor nobility of what country? Brunei. <laughs> minor no- <laughs> I've nobility. I met several of concubines of the Sultan of Brunei. <laughs> no, I uh, I was in uh, a town called Freckenhorst, Germany, which is very small, little, and very made up. It's it does sound made up. <laughs> Freckenhorst. It's outside of Münster. Nobody looked this up. And uh, and I was uh, I was there, and I heard a Oompa Oompa band. And I was sitting in my hotel, and I was like, I do not want to. I've got my shoes off. I don't want to put my shoes back on and go out and find where this Oompa music is coming from. But uh, I can't not. You know, like I can't not go trace down what's happening. And so I put my shoes back on and I went and I'm walking around and I can't figure out where it's coming from. There's a big wall in the town and I walk around the wall and there's a big church there and I come to this, uh, what, what, what looked like a town hall and, uh, there's a wall all around it. And inside there are, uh, probably a hundred people all dressed in, in like, um, Lederhosen. Pretty much. But, but the, but not the, this isn't Bavaria. It's up in, in uh, Munsterland. And so they're in this kind of Schutzenfest costuming. It looks like folk dress. Well, hats with big feathers yeah. and it's very militaristic, but kind of co- comically, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that, that thing that the Germans do where yeah. it's like, is this serious or are you having fun? And then you realize it's really serious and it's like, but your uniforms are kind of pink. You look like you're in Prisoner of Zenda, but... Uh, anyway, so I went in, and and uh, and they were having a big party, and I went over to the bar and ordered, you know, a Coke. And there were two teenage boys tending the bar, and they were very handsome. No one else there was handsome, but these two teenage boys were handsome. And they laughed, and they served me the drinks. And then somebody in a, in a Schutzenfest outfit came over and said, this is a private party. And I was like, oh, sorry, I just, you know. The, the, Did you buy the drinks or were you counting on the complimentary bar? Hey, I, you know, hello. Open bar, what's <laughs> up? I'm John Roderick, how do you do? And uh, anyway, then, uh, then uh, the door on the second floor of the town hall opened and out walked a man who looked very much like a prince and, you know, older guy and, and his beautiful wife and his young daughter. And they came and they did some sort of Queen Elizabeth wave all of the freaking horse Schutzenfest people started goose-stepping. What? In a big oompa parade around in a circle. And I was, I was uh, gobsmacked, as you, would, as you would be. 
And uh, they did this uh, three or four times around the courtyard. And they're all drunk, you know, so it's like drunk goose-stepping. And um, I realized, you know, goose-stepping is just part of their culture, Ken. Uh, but then and when you and I do it, it's appropriation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then somebody said, well, then the goose stepping stopped and everybody went back drinking and the, then the prince went back inside the house. And then one of the, and I stayed all night, of course. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe you weren't asked to leave. <laughs> no, no, no. Then they were like, ah, you're one of our oldest friends. But then somebody said the two teenage boys who are uh, tending bar are the two sons of the Earl who lives in this, uh, this schloss, which is not the town hall, but is the princely manor of the old family that rules in Freckenhorst. And their summer job is with, is with like a catering company? Well, no, they're just like, oh, we're having a party. We're going to attend bar, right? And, and, I, and I was wondering, like, why are the bartenders 16 and, <laughs> and 14? Liquor laws are very different over there. But I did have that experience of like, these, these boys are. Like beautiful, and in a way that that um, that then once I realized they were royalty, I couldn't figure out whether I loved them because well, you noticed first I did, but then once I knew, I had that American thing of yeah. like, you guys Ooh. are some kind of aristocrats. You're only six deaths away from being the Earl of Vetter Hammersmorst, right? Even though the whole that whole system was abolished in <laughs> <Right>. Germany <laughs> at the end of World That's War. That's what I'm kind of wondering. Are these this is kind of an ancestral traditional thing now? I think throughout Europe there are all these uh, families that don't actually have any power or authority. I mean, there's but a Slavish loss. There's so. like a king of Romania still. Uh, some old man who's like, well, technically I, I'm the king of Romania, but nobody wants me or they want me, but they, but there's no house anymore. Yeah. I, I was reading about in, you know, reading a uh, background for this very entry. I was reading about Henry the ninth of England, who of course, spoilers never took the throne. We're, oh, we're sure. not in some man in the high castle world where there was a Henry the ninth of England, <laughs> but this is just, some um, you know, last Stuart pretender, you know, living in Corsica or Ireland somewhere like well into the 19th century being like, yeah, I'm Henry the ninth, by the way, the (laughs) ninth because of just some, some twist in, uh, in the, uh, the war of the daffodils and he could have been the, no, it's yeah, it's, well, it's the, it's the right. Of course. Yeah. He's, he's the, he's the Scottish Stuart heir who, if that had gone another way would have been Henry the ninth. Apparently, I don't know why they're picking Tudor names, but, but they did. But I guess yeah, it's our our modern kind of fascination with the with the glamour and glow of celebrity is maybe you know the only way we can really appreciate how a medieval European would have felt about her or his king. Um, you know, we don't necessarily believe that God has appointed Christopher Guest or Ted Danson <laughs> to appear on our televisions, and that you know because Christ cannot be here that. Sam Malone is doing what what, what, what Christ, Christ would, would do, do if he had retired from the Red Sox early. Which is to have dinner with me. <laughs> Ten bar at Cheers time. and have dinner with John once. <laughs> I'm sure he thinks back <laughs> on it often. <laughs> we had a very, a very lively conversation. But you, you, but people really had a kind of a semi-divine view of royalty, and we can scoff at it now until we think about how we would act if we met Taylor Swift or Paul McCartney or whoever. And we probably would be gibbering weirdos. Do, do, you're just too young to remember uh, uh, Grace Kelly as Princess Grace, and I remember and, her death. Yeah, but but the vibe first, first USA Today, by the way, I think first edition of USA Today was B- banner headline: Grace Kelly dies in, in automobile crash. Really? 
I did not own the first USA Today, but I'm sure I admired the uh, the little infographic in the lower left. But there was a time in the 70s and 80s when Princess Stephanie and uh, all that uh, all that stuff was in the news. All the, it was it was what constituted like People Magazine level. Yeah, and Charles and Die Mania, of course. Right. Um, that I remember all the olds having a coffee table book of. But it felt then that there was a kind of circuit in Europe, like a like a like a circuit of cocktail parties you would never be invited to, where where the people were titled, and so a different kind of celebrity, like Mick Jagger might get invited, but there were a lot of pop stars that couldn't have gone to these parties. But there were these minor, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Susie Quattro. Sorry, yeah. Juice Newton. <laughs> Sorry, Juice Newton. Can't get in. <laughs> but like this, this super minor little baronet from from uh, someplace in Germany that doesn't exist anymore is invited because because uh, they're members of a family. Uh, I guess if you're a particular fan of some, if you're a screaming fan of some particular celebrity, you might be closer to the actual medieval belief that right. that these are divinely appointed personages who would that be for you kanye steve, steve malcolmus <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> it's steve it's uh kim deal yeah uh, you know i believe that god created kim and kelly deal you know they, they're twins they hatched from eggs i know they are they hatched from robin's eggs um you know kelly deal makes scarves i've talked about that on the show before oh yeah i had forgotten kelly deal making scarves yeah. yeah is that is that something the gods would do i guess uh athena was a weaver We've, we, I've e- emailed back and forth with her about scarves, thinking, you know, that I was like the target market for a Kelly Deal scarf. Oh, I thought you were going to maybe learn to knit or crochet no. the better to hang. No, no, I, I just haven't, uh, haven't found the one I want yet. The idea that, um, you know, we associate this divine right of kings that we all have to learn about in AP history with, um, with Christian medieval Europe. But, you know, the tradition goes back to as far back as there have been as far back as there's been civilization, basically, you know, from the evidence we have of ancient Mesopotamia, our evidence is the earliest people who could be called kings were really just the priests of Astarte or, or whoever the whoever the fertility goddess was, who had been given so much clout and so many, you know, so much beer and grain by the right. adoring population that they essentially, you know, one of them essentially became royalty. They built a temple of syrinx. <laughs> and uh, one t- of them sat atop it. Think how depressing the temples must have been back then. You know, just some low clay walls. You know, we, we like to imagine Arthurian Camelots, but that, if, stuff, that stuff didn't get good until like, it's just like Mad King Ludwig building retro ones when the castles get good. If I had a mud wall around my place, I would be satisfied. I'd be pretty psyched, actually. It's not too late. A lot of your problems would be solved if, they, you, just had a, if you just had a mud wall if around I, your house. If I had like an eight-foot mud a wall. A low mud wall and a small, uh, a small shrine to uh, Ishtar. Yeah, right. That's all you need. And a 50-caliber machine gun. <laughs> they didn't have that in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, the Roman emperors were offered, you know, the Roman Empire was kind of kept together with the idea that we must be dutiful uh, uh, sacrificers to the gods. And as a result, you know, once Roman leaders became emperors, they were offered cultus kind of a godlike or demigodlike status but it really ramps up in the christian era because once again of the bible oh i know um here it comes again <laughs> now i know you love the bible i do <laughs> so the roman emperors were were demigods but 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 i mean how not elevated up into any kind of pantheon or were they 
Yeah, I mean, I, w- are you saying after after they die, would could you continue would you to, offer to Caesar, for yeah, example, continue to appeal to them, or yeah. or would that transfer to the next? I actually know from reading up on the the entry I'm going to put in the vault in two weeks that when Caesar died, Augustus built a temple to him oh. and had like a massive a massive uh, citywide games to celebrate the fact that you could now go pray to Julius Caesar. When I die, will you build a temple to me? Yeah, but it'll be like the low mud kind. Yeah. And the machine guns will be fake. I'll take it. The machine guns will be like my son's old Nerf pistols that he doesn't want anymore, (laughs) Nerf rifles. Um, So in the Bible, kings are afforded a certain status. I mean, I think uh, these medieval European kings probably ignored the idea that God keeps telling Israel, look, you don't want a king. You've You've got me, Yahweh, you know, judges and prophets, you know, don't say my vowels. Mm-hmm. You don't need a king. But eventually God gives in. And so Samuel, the prophet, or, you know, or subsequent prophets ordain, you know, give their phys- give, give their actual divine imprimatur to King Saul and King David and so on. So you have these biblical examples of kings whom the God of Israel has said, uh, you now run my people. And how much of their decision making is um, independent of God? I mean, how many? How many? Like, well, they're always screwing up, right? So, I mean, do they have like regular conferences? Do they check in, or they're just God gave them the the little tin star, and then they're out uh, running the running the town, and then they. I mean, they've got to do important sacrifices, but the Bible, right. the, old, the Hebrew Bible is full of stories of them just screwing it up. Yeah, David's supposed to save this bread for the sacrifice, and he just eats it. Like he's, See, he's a, he's a one marshmallow King. He you can't, had one job. David, you had one job. It, and it was like not to send that guy into war so you could have sex with his wife. Right. Cause you were one job. Cause you were spying on her bathing. Saul goes crazy and throws javelins at people. I mean. See, you and I have kept both those covenants. We have sent no one into war, slept not no. with their wives no. and have hurled no javelins. But is it the lack of opportunity? I mean, you and neither oh, of us right. are in a position where we could send someone off to Iraq or Afghanistan because they have a, a pretty young military bride. All right. You're saying we don't, we'll never be tested until. Yeah, I'm saying given the tested. chance, yeah. you would do that and I would not. <laughs> well, yeah, actually. <laughs> the, um, so these medieval kings kind of ignored the part of the story where the kings are like a screw up, plan B and a huge screw ups. And they just say, hey, you know what God wanted his people to have? A king. Are you saying that people perverted the the intention of the Bible? It's the first and last time it ever happened. Okay, okay. But you can see why it's to their advantage. I mean, the mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 Christian era promotes this biblical ethos of uh, great humility before God. You don't ask questions; you just do what God says, and that's good news for a king, for a king of Wessex or or France or something. If he can say, "Hey," I'm sorry to say this, but Jesus isn't around. I'm going to be minding the shop while he's gone. And as a result, I need you to show all the unquestioning obedience and humility <laughs> you would show the God of the universe to me. Some some, Habsburg. Uh, some hemophiliac Habsburg <laughs> with a weird jaw. But, you know, the Bible is, even within itself, always retconning itself. Like every next chapter of the Bible is saying, well, what the last chapter really meant now now is uh here here's here's what that chapter you know it's like constantly sure. 
changing even within itself. So I guess you've got Jesus saying, hey, render unto Caesars the things that are Caesars and render unto God's the things that are God's. And that's a distinction that gets kind of blurred. Right. In the What are those? In the early mo- in the medieval and early modern era here. Give me all the God things and then I'll get them to God. It's a trickle down thing. I'll decide which things it's are a trickle God's. up thing. We yeah. have the and uh, you know, even in the and this is complicated for many years in that Europe is also kind of being run by a Pope who is also, he is always eager to point out God's chosen representative and the successor of Christ in a certain way and so forth. But, um, you know, King, you know, it's, it's a long way. It's a long, it takes a long time for a raven to get to Rome back then. Mm-hmm. So in various it's even parts longer of Europe, temporary. <laughs> for a raven? <laughs> it's, uh, Depending on when they left, yeah. Yeah, and if they, if they take this, I mean, literally a raven is going to go as the crow flies. Right. Or is he not? Is he going to go as the raven right. flies? Uh, is it, are we talking about a, a European <laughs> raven, or? But even back then, when the Pope was like, you know, had a pretty substantial clout. Uh, With a K. Kings and yeah, he had a, his clout score was amazing. Fave star in the bio. Uh, the kings of various principalities and, and, and duchies and so forth all over Europe were eager to say, um, we also in our realm have a certain. God-given responsibility. Uh, Richard the Lionheart's battle cry was, God and my right, Hmm. which is a little bit hard to parse. To this day, no one really knows if he meant my right hand, you know. My right to your pretty wife. Exactly. God gives me my right, or, you know, is he saying God's God's and my rights are the same, or, but this is, it doesn't matter. It's so, it, it, it appear, it now appears in the United Kingdom coat of arms. Right. Um, It's, it's been stuck into history. And, you know, I think the implication there is that, um, you know, he's in battle saying, you know, God and my right, you know, if, if God wants me to win, I'm going to win, you know, I'll win, I'll, I'll succeed by his divine favor. And there's really no difference between my will and his, um, and it, you know, his motivations are pretty plain. There's a story of, you know, on the way home from the crusades, King Richard was kidnapped. It's the whole reason we get Robin Hood, uh, is that, you know, he's, kidnapped by a series he's passed around for ransoms um the holy roman empire is not crazy that he annexed cyprus on his way home mm-hmm. which you know it's pretty ambitious yeah it's, Crus- it's, crusade's over he's headed home you know what just gonna annex cyprus cyprus is easy to annex but hard to hold have you tried to annex cyprus no but it's on my to-do list this is my risk game strategy i always start by <laughs> you gotta take australia and you gotta annex cyprus um, and so when he's uh, when he's facing trial uh, to the Holy Roman Emperor for you know he's facing some some diet of angry electors, he actually says, "Hey, I am born in a rank which recognizes no superior but God, to whom alone I am responsible for my actions." Mm-hmm. He's saying, "How dare you, try me, Germanic your... people, try to try me?" Yeah, in your temporal court. I all I have to do is please God, and unless you're God, you have no jurisdiction here. That's usually what someone says, just as they light the pyre under their feet, right? <laughs> well, we know from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that he gets back. Right. He's he's protected by his royal station. He's no, he's not going to get Joan of Arc. Um, but this idea of Richard's that um, that the king is responsible to no one but God really explodes after the Protestant Reformation in the Protestant parts of Europe, because now there's a big power vacuum. Right, there's no interlocutor, no no Pope. Intermediary? No. It's I just, mean, he could be your interlocutor, too, if, if, you're, yeah, on, if you're on his podcast. I guess that's right. <laughs> hey, 
What's up? What's up, Pally? What's up, Your Holiness? But so you're saying that the Protestant kings then uh there there were all those layers of uh of middle management that were gone and they really this divine right of kings and and suddenly they're very eager to oh. say hey much as you know much as you used to think of the pope as the only intermediary between you and god we don't have him anymore but good news there's me henry the 8th or or whoever um and the funny thing is now there's an ironic pressure for these new european leaders to take on all that kind of uh Papal um, ritual and, you know, elaborate um, goings on. But the fact is many of them are austere Protestants. Exactly. Uh, my, my, I cannot picture the, the, uh, the papal, pa- pape-like rituals that would be adopted by somebody that was it. Some Scottish steward. Yeah, right. Where their nothing under his kilt. Had no ornamentation and. And Jesus was just an aluminum suggestion. Does does James the First have a fine ermine kilt he can put on? It's hard to imagine, right? It is. I always think of the divine right of kings as a as a thing in the in the, on the Catholic side of right. the Habsburgs, but no, it actually became much more um, uh, strongly asserted oh. uh, after the Reformation, and it led to this kind of tension between. Hey, does the king do all this magical stuff, or is that like kind of popish and weird, and we need to strip that out? The, to what degree do the people need it? To what degree can we talk his majesty into it? Um, you know, how much do we have to pay off the archbishop to allow it? Uh, Are we talking about Swedish kings here? Don't they just uh, march around and salt the earth? Isn't that their scheme? Our story today primarily takes place in England and France. I don't know if the royal touch ever extended into the Scandinavian monarchies. That's an interesting question. Must have done. You'd think back up there, they would just, you know, if somebody gets sick, they just what, throw you into a snowdrift. Yeah. And if you're still alive in May. No, they open up an elk and throw you in that and then throw <laughs> the elk into a snowdrift. I thought these things smelled bad <laughs> on the outside. Um, so this tension between, you know, which of these rites do, do these new divine kings do leads to a revival of this tradition that actually goes back centuries prior uh, of royal touch it's not clear how far back it goes. And a lot of this is because of that English French rivalry that defines so much of our history of this era. Uh, the English will say, Hey, Edward, the confessor was totally doing this like before the Norman conquest. And the French will say, no, you English pig dog. You know, he was not, you know, they would say, you know, he got this from Clovis the first or, you know, Robert the first, or, you know, some Philip the first, some French King, you know, it's just later, later guys. You know, William the First or your Henry the First are picking this up from our guys, and the English would say, "No, it wasn't." You know very well Louis the Ninth started this, and he got it from our side. He saw, he saw the Normans doing it, and so there's, there's the history, the early tr- uh, origins of this tradition are hard to pick out because the English and French are fighting over, and the the implication is a real geopolitical one. You know, which of these kings is exercising true divine right? That has a lot of implications for. Who should right. control the French throne? Who, who should it pass down to? Yeah, who sh- you know, because at this point, England and France are fighting over a lot of the same territory. So the question of who is the king of Brittany, for example, is is in question and is changing every few decades. Is that it? Are those source materials still in dispute now among historians? Yes, it is not clear where the tradition of the royal touch 
began because so much of what we have from it know about it comes from the maybe these post reformation traditions of well it was edward the confessor what's generally believed is that uh there is an, a common uh, infection less common today in the middle ages called scrofula hmm. um yeah, I hardly you, you ever I, hear about it. Yeah, you and I are not scrofulous. That's because today we call it tuberculous cervical lymphadenitis. Oh, so right. Of, of course, we all know about. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. Talk more. about TCL a lot. We've we've had done a few omnibuses about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, it's what if tuberculosis the the the, the is a bacteria lung lung yeah. What if instead of getting your lung instead it got in the lymph nodes of your neck? Oh yuck! And the answer is yuck. That yeah. is the it's diagnosis. A bo- it's a big boil. You right. get lesions, you get uh, weeping and swelling, and it goes up into the face. Mm. Um, I think it can even affect the eyesight if it if it gets up high enough. So it's gross, which makes it kind of like leprosy. Sure. Um, and as we know, again, from the Bible, uh, stepping in thousands of years later to change our point of view, um, there is a history of God's appointed... God's anointed being able to do magical things with his touch. Right. He's like a... Lays on the hand. Close-up magic, yeah. In in the Hebrew Bible, you've got Moses putting his hands on Joshua and then on other Israelite elders to ordain them to positions. And then in the New Testament, of course, it becomes expressly about healing. Yeah. Christ often touches people. You know, He'll do very physical things. He'll wipe mud in their eyes. He'll touch their skin. Somebody will touch him and he'll be like, ooh, I just, uh, I just got... Um, I just done healed somebody, you know, like by them touching him. Yeah, a famous story is uh Christ walking through a crowd and suddenly he's like, "Hey, I just felt the virtue go out of me. Who touched my robe?" And it's some lady the and she's like, out of, well, "I mean, it can't be all of the virtue, sure, I hope." He dra- drained a little virtue. Like, but yeah, he can tell like he's he's lost some hit points. Wait, wait, wait a minute. There used to be four mini bar bottles of whiskey and now there are only three. But you'd think that being Christ, he has infinite This goes back to the council and I see you think he had an infinite virtue. And it would be a Hilbert Hotel scenario where, you know, he doesn't care if one room of his infinite Hilbert Hotel of virtue um, checks out. But it's more like the battery in your in your uh, right. electric car. Exactly. He's goes like, down ooh. and then back up. I mean, that implies that he has to go recharge at night through prayer. Touching me, touching you. Uh-uh. Is this why you wanted to ask about Scandinavian kings? <laughs> so you could sing Abba later? Um, and then after uh, Jesus uh, ascends to heaven, the apostles continue... His work, and they often uh, lay their hands on each other to administer the Holy Spirit. So both spiritual and healing gifts are conveyed by touching. And if the if the King is truly God's servant and Christ's representative in our little kingdom, wherever we are, Wessex or whatever, he must have that power too. Then you'd think he would have that power too. Scrofula was very common back then because I think it was often spread via unpasteurized milk, or uh-huh. as they called it, milk. Right. And it's a big reason why you and I are not scrofulous right now. Because? Because we are scrupulous oh, about, pasteurize about our pasteurizing milk. our milk. I see. Um, I thought you were going to say, because as Northern Europeans, we had developed... We don't drink... Through our constant milk consumption <laughs> an immunity. I thought it's because we, we're adult men and don't drink big frosty glasses of milk anymore. Don't you, though? With a cookie, I do. Yeah. Mindy stopped buying. I only drink 1%. Oh. I used to be a 2% That's virtuous. Guy. Yeah, I used to be a 2% guy, and then I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm not doing quite enough for God. Sure, bump it down. I'm going to, if I deny myself a little bit of milk fat, I will be rewarded in the in the, the kingdom to come. But did it take the joy away? 
Uh, no, I actually found that as long as it's not skim, this stuff's fine. Yeah, skim is kind of translucent. Skim's in a, gross a problem. Way. But to me, one and two percent were, and I didn't like whole milk either. In Korea, when I was a kid, all we could really get oh. on the on the Korean market was whole milk. And the first time my mom served it, I was like, "What? You know, it kind of coats your mouth with yeah, yeah. a little a little molecule of butter fat. You can already what is this? feel the feel the uh, the phlegm welling up in the back of your neck." She was wishing us many goods and cheese. Throat, I guess. I, you don't say neck. It could be on the back of your neck if you have scrofula. <laughs> I guess so. Um, so, but like Mindy just stopped buying 1% milk because nobody was drinking it, but, oh. but the kids and they preferred skim. So they prefer skim. It's weird to me too. Do they put it on their cereal? Who or Do they drink glasses of milk? Both. Wow. C- cereal and, and it's just that bluish water, that blue Star Wars milk <laughs> Duke, that, Duke, that Duke, is skim Duke. milk. But good for them. Good for these, um, good for those tender millennial snowflakes. This entry of Omnibus would never have come to be without Squarespace. Thank God for Squarespace. You and I would have just imagined it and thought about how great a show this, what a great addition to our canon this would be, but it all just would have been hypothetical if Squarespace had not chosen to come down and walk among us and sponsor this very entry the problem is i don't know what they are what the is squarespace what the heck is squarespace john here's some things you can do with squarespace ken you can create a beautiful website to turn your cool idea into a new website you can showcase your work you can blog or publish content you can sell products and services of all kinds you can promote your physical or online business announce upcoming events or special projects and more that sounds fantastic. I don't want to design my own website. I want custom templates that are already designed for me. I'm Ken. I want, I want, I want. It's all well, about me, me, me. Well, here's what Squarespace does for you. They have beautiful templates created by <gasps> world-class designers. <gasps> they have powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. What? And they have the ability to customize look and feel settings, products, and more with just a few clicks. There's really no excuse not to set up a website. Squarespace makes it that easy. No matter what your interest or hustle is, whatever your next big thing is going to be, we encourage you to make it a Squarespace joint. So go to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website domain that's squarespace.com slash omnibus use offer code omnibus thank you to squarespace for supporting omnibus and the omnibus project and for everything else they do at some point a superstition began that the only reliable cure for scrofula was to have the king touch you oh and it's hard to imagine how this began uh, I mean, it was so. It, this was so in, deeply ingrained that scrofula was often called mal du roi, you know, the king's illness, which is a bummer. It, yeah. it implies that he causes it. We but, don't call we don't call cancer chemotherapy's illness. It's kind of a tricky way to say there is no cure for it because how many of these unlucky people are ever going to get the king to touch them? Well, that's the thing. You you need to create a massive infrastructure to get scrofulous subjects in front of his Majesty, and in fact, that is what happens in medieval Europe. In front of the king. So the king can't transfer the king's touch to, like, a stick. Well, as we'll see, he can transfer it to some kind of amulet or talisman. But you need his majesty's fingers. 
Got it. Um, now, this does not often accord with his majesty's desire to not be touching a lot of gross, sick lesions. Right. So his was, majesty's fingers is actually a kind of mattress. <laughs> his majesty's fingers? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of those condoms you buy in a gas station. <laughs> They've got the Portuguese tickler. They're always the, out of the, his, his majesty's, majesty's fingers. fingers. <laughs> that's the one that's never there. <laughs> uh, so the king, obviously, is like, do I really have to do this? Yeah, But it's an important part of his imprimatur as king. Historically, uh, modern-day historians have noticed that the rise of the royal touch always corresponds with a new dynasty. You know, when Henry VII takes the throne, suddenly he's like, ooh, you know what we haven't done in a while? The royal touch. Because it's a way of showing everybody, from the church to the nobles to the common man alike, I've got to be the real king. I'm I'm touching scrofulous people up here on Easter and Michaelmas. Right. Um I killed my uncle and all four of his right. sons. <laughs> but I've got to be the legitimate king because this guy Scrofula went away. Now, so there was this whole system whereby if you had the symptoms of Scrofula, you would have to go to your local church warden who would take a look and, you know, he would say, uh, that does appear to be Scrofula. And what's more, I've been keeping these records for generations and you, dumb Kevin, have not uh, been to see the, his majesty. Oh. So you are eligible so that list of all the people in his parish got sent on to uh, to Whitehall or London, you know, wherever the king lived. And uh, on a certain day, and it, it ended up, I think it, at first it was a much more informal tradition. The the tradition actually is that whoever started it, Edward the Confessor or whatever, he would he would touch his his ailing subjects, and then the crown would pay for their upkeep and care. Oh. Um, and so when the process got streamlined and simplified for greater throughput, the process became, he'll touch you, and then you'll get a coin. A coin. You get a little, you know, the idea is that it, it continues this tradition of the, the crown helping to pay for your healing. But it's more of a commemorative coin. It's both, uh, as we'll see. Okay. Um, it's a real coin of the realm. So uh, you get, uh, the king doesn't want to do this every day. So eventually it gets codified to basically Easter and Michaelmas. Mm-hmm. Now you and I, obviously we celebrate Easter with our baskets and our bunnies. Every week. Oh, you celebrate Easter every week? Yes, every week. Which day of the a week? New Easter. Which day of the week do you celebrate yeah, well, Easter? Well, it's on a lunar calendar, so. <laughs> and the lunar. <laughs> it changes. It's like a nine day week for you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we don't celebrate Michaelmas much in this country. I had to look, I had to Google when Michaelmas is. It's, when is uh, it? Late September. It seems to be chosen, I mean, it's the day of St. Michael, the archangel, which, you know, good for him. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, a whole day. Do we really need a saint? Do we really need to beatify Michael, the archangel? He's already an angel. He's a he's an archangel. He's a glorious, inhuman presence of light. Do we really need to codify his uh, miracles and say, and he's a saint? I mean, they have to they have to fill up that whole all, that row of uh, row of statues there in at St. Peter's Square, do, like. Is they, it like a, at the at a T-Mobile Park where there's not enough championship banners for the Mariners? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had to they had to fill a gap. Yeah, why do you make Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael saints? I guess you just have to kiss up to those guys, right? It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Considering that there are some there are some lower saints that didn't really do that much. All the excesses in a logic of religion, and this is the first time you and I have ever agreed. They've gone too far. Do you feel You should not be canonizing archangels? I mean, is saint like three star general where they all are basically the same rank except everybody knows like this one's kind of a sap and that one is really in charge? Or 
are there different levels of saint? Yeah, you can be beatified, but it's usually a step in being canonized. So I think it is, maybe it's analogous to the general thing where you could get a promotion. Yeah. But yeah, I think in the end, everybody has the same rank. And then just the people know, well, I care about uh, St. Jude and I don't care about St. Ethelred. Right. The, and here comes scrofulous. Michael, like, look busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, the, the reason why M- Michael's Saint Day became such a big feast day is, you know, first of all, because they're angels, so let's have a feast for them. Right. But also just because it happened to fall um, right around the time of the, you know, if if, um, if Christmas is your solstice festival and is Easter e- is your spring equinox, equinox, yeah, this is six months after. So it's like your fiscal year, basically. It's It's helpful for the king to have every six months a holy day so he can do tax stuff or whatever. And in this case, he can invite thousands of of gross oozing uh, peasants mm-hmm. to Whitehall and uh, do the laying on of hands. My, my daughter's birthday is in March and mine is in September. And, you know, for most of my life, my birthday was what happened in September because there's not much else that happens in September. Nope. But now my birthday has basically been converted into my daughter's half birthday. Wait, she gets a half birthday? Well, no, she doesn't, but she, she thinks, thinks she, she does. does. And so right around my birthday when I'm like, Hey, here it comes. She's like, you know, my half birthday's coming up. My family is also a May November romance, but we don't celebrate any of the November people's half birthday. So I get my my special Gemini Day all to right. myself. Right. But it is always around Memorial we Day. We say Gemini. We do not say Gemini. We we the astronauts. <laughs> uh, uh the um my birthday's always around Memorial Day and everybody else's is around Thanksgiving, so it's a nightmare. Not Memorial Day so much. Who cares about Memorial Day? Anyway, so every Easter in Michaelmas, the king would invite all these people who'd been approved by their church wardens. They'd have to come in and they'd have to be examined by like a royal physician and a couple surgeons to see if it really was scrofula. Like, I like how there's a scientific, uh, this has to be peer-reviewed, obviously. We only want his majesty touching the truly scrofulous. Well, but at the time, there were probably five or six different ways you could have a pussy neck. (laughs) And so they had to say, no, this is something else. Did a rake fall on you? Yeah. Why, yes, it did. On what part of you? My neck. All right, next. (laughs) And that's just a pimple, a really bad whitehead. Sorry, trigger alert. So all these kings of England and France from possibly Edward the Confessor or Clovis, whoever, on down, would just go through... Go through a line. Somebody would come up. There, you know, there'd be a big mass for all of them. The uh, the the archbishop or whoever would get up and read from John chapter one, which, as we recently covered in the Council of Nicaea, is all about how God sent the Word to Earth in human form. So I guess maybe it's a winky implication that well, that was Jesus. But good news now it's Henry the Seventh. Huh? You know, like <laughs> it's not just it's not just a it's, tripartite. It's uh... No, it's yeah. got these other There's hitchhikers. Father, Son, Holy it. Ghost, and <laughs> Henry Seventh, I guess. Um, and then they would go on to read the end of the book of Mark, which is the Great Commission to the Apostles, where they are told, hey, you just go throughout all the world spreading my gospel. And, but it's key, uh, the key thing there is it says, and, you know, you'll ha- first of all, you'll have, you'll have miraculous powers. Mm-hmm. So it explains how the king can do this stuff. But it also says, you know, you can um, be bitten by snakes, and they won't be, they won't kill you. You can, you know, lay your hands on lepers and they'll be cured. So it's kind of outlining the healing power and the the imperviousness to to toxin and disease that God's servants will have. Right, but it is putting some limits on it too. I mean, you can be bitten by a snake and not die, but oh yeah, but not a lion. Well, maybe it does. Maybe it's just implying. <laughs> you think the implication <laughs> is uh, 
Call me for the small stuff. Yeah. Or or like uh I think it's just listing a variety of a variety to to demonstrate the vast array of things uh from which God protects us. But not it's it, they it's never true. make a claim about syphilis, it's right? It never says like and if you if your head is cut off it will regrow. Right. That's that's a fair point, I guess. Apparently um, there are 17 species of viper in Europe. But are any of them poisonous? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess this, the, you know you have to remember that this would have included the Middle East and yeah, there North are Africa lots of, and lots of viperous snakes. Uh, the Book of Acts actually includes stories bearing out this this prophecy, where snake bites, in fact, I think, uh, are ineffective against. Who knows? Let's say Peter. This is what people uh, don't know about where we live here in the Northwest: no poisonous snakes. That's true. We do have. Um, we do have black widows. We do have a few poisonous spiders, but really nobody's died in 50 years. Because most so of those, hard. yeah, they live over in Wenatchee. <laughs> but there are people in Wenatchee who reach into their mailbox and get can get black widowed or something. But the fact is, it just swells up and then yeah. a doctor gives you a shot and you're fine. And whether or not the residents of Wenatchee are people, technically. And I guess, do they believe in doctors? There you go. Hard to say. <laughs> Maybe they just have spider doctors. Maybe they I'm do. I'm not getting that <laughs> vaccine, but I need my spider shot. They do die and they get buried in the desert. <laughs> That's as per local law. Yeah. There are no cemeteries east of the Cascades. Um, so then the people file in front of the king. He will touch them. Um, Gross. Yeah, he didn't really want to. Uh, originally, it was like any ailment. You know, the king would say, would ask you, you know, what do you have? I have a fever, my lord. And he'd be like, boom. But eventually it was just scrofula. Um and you, then he would, he would, act, and one of the reasons why the coin, the talisman developed is because he didn't want to touch you with his fingers because gross. King doesn't, the king's like you and me. He doesn't want pus on right. his, on his fingers. At all. So he would touch you with this coin or kind of wave it in the sign of the cross over you, but then you'd get to keep the coin. Um, and it was an actual, uh, you know, uh, good quality gold coin. Of, uh, uh, I think they minted new coins showing St. Michael, the archangel fighting Satan. Uh, so the coin was informally called the angel, but it would have a hole punched in it and a ribbon threaded through it. Oh. But you'd still have, you know, five grams of gold. So that was valuable. And it was part of the reason for the elaborate uh, oh, filtering technique. Make sure there are no grifters. Yeah. And a lot of, I'm sure a lot of the people with scrofula were like, this is not going to work, but I would like five grams of gold, please, your majesty. But that's why they had to make sure it was no repeat customers. Right. It's like one of those online voting things. They don't want anybody doing it a million times. Um, so yeah, by the time of you the, mean voting, yeah, or, <laughs> or like actual voting. Uh, and so this was how it worked in Tudor time, but under the Stuarts, this is where this ritual really took off. You know, James the first and Charles the first were both reluctant because they wanted to simplify everything about Catholicism in the, the, the church of you know, England. They wanted a more austere church of England with less ritual um, but, uh, they were persuaded that this is what it took to show, you know, they were a new dynasty as well. They were right. the Stuarts. They had to show that they were legitimate heirs to the English throne. Um, so they bit the bullet as it were. They insisted that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to touch them so much. I'm just going to use the coin. One of it's speculated that one of the reasons why this was often performed at Easter and Michaelmas is because the cold weather meant that scrofula was less likely. It was thought to be less um, virulent. Is it? And less likely to spread to his majesty's, I mean, I or guess. Or just people wearing mufflers and so you can't get to their I mean, it's bacterial? 
You'd think that winter would be cold season when everybody's getting tuberculosis. Right. That's probably in your lungs, though. I don't know. I mean, the science of this is all very iffy. I mean, today— Wait a minute. The science of laying on hands is iffy? Well, the science of why people assumed that the king could cure scrofula. I guess it's assumed that it's because it was a self-limiting disease. In other words, it would often just go into remission. Right. So all it took would be a few cases where—high-profile cases where the king did touch somebody and— by next week, the scrofula was gone, and then the story spreads. Yeah. And then it becomes a thing where it's self-perpetuating. The people who did get cured are going to trumpet it. The people who didn't won't because, first of all, there might be reprisals from those in power, of the church and the state, if they go around saying, hey, James the first touched me and it didn't do jack. Was there not some element of, well, it didn't work because you're a sinner? And there's that as well. Like, well, the king can't have been at fault. I'm the only other person in that interaction. So, yeah, I'm assuming there's some of that as well. And, of course, you know, we've talked about the placebo effect. You know, I don't know. That probably does not work on neck lesions, but it might be like, you know what? Maybe I'm still oozing and pussy, but I feel so much better since his majesty touched me. What is the cure for it since it's— Bacterial, it would just be penicillin now, but could you just wash your neck rigorously? I'm not sure at the time what you could have done. Um, Today. Stop rubbing your neck on the tuberculosis post? Today, I mean, for some some tuberculosis bacteria, a surgical excision um, works really well, but then it can recur. Um, so yeah, it's more normally just antibiotics. There's some cocktail of ooh, like six things I can't pronounce. Yikes! Um, streptomycin. I recognize the there last one. There it is. One. That's a one. The other four I can't say. Um, but uh, the the talisman, the royal touch piece, it was called. You were supposed to keep with you, and it became. It wasn't just a souvenir, but it was actually supposed to protect you. Um, <clears throat> Doctor Johnson, Samuel Johnson, the the writer and, and thinker, was actually had a bad case of scrofula as a kid and lost eyesight in one eye because of it. So at the age of two, he was brought before Queen Anne, who gave him the royal touch, and he kept his little amulet on a around his neck for the rest of his life. I mean, possibly hmm. as just kind of a souvenir. Right. The way you would grab a French fry if you saw Ted Danson yeah. eating some fries and one fell on the floor. I survived scrofula, and all I have to show for it is this gold coin. But, um, you know, with the exception of this, there was a short, as you can imagine, there was an Oliver Cromwell-type interregnum in uh, the divine right of kings and royal touching. But before and after, the Stuarts just could not stop touching. Um, I think it was Charles I that touched 8,500 people in one year. Oh, that's a lot of touching. Across the Channel in France, Louis XIV touched 1,600 people one Easter. Uh, Charles the first, or sorry, Charles the second, um, had such a massive uh, a, a royal touch ceremony that it led to a stampede, and people were actually trampled to death. Whoa! Um, and you know Shakespeare's Macbeth, a work written to help legitimize the uh, the Stuart, the, the new Scottish kings of England. Um, actually wrote about, has Malcolm speak about this in Act 4 of Macbeth. Shakespeare has Malcolm say about Scrofula, "'Tis called the evil, a most miraculous work in this good king, which often since my here remain in England, I have seen him do. How he solicits heaven himself best knows, but strangely visited people, all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye, 
the mere despair of surgery, barbers have been trying to cut it out and it doesn't work, he cures, hanging a golden stamp about their necks, put on with holy prayers. And tis spoken to the succeeding royalty, he leaves the healing benediction. With this strange virtue, he hath a heavenly gift of prophecy, and a sundry blessings hang about his throne that speak him full of grace. So basically, we can tell the king is full of grace, grace and prophecy. Among other things. Because he's out here touching the scrofulous, just like Christ used to do. You know, there's 3,600 seconds in an hour. You could... Um, They're not coming up in an assembly line like, but you can't do one a second. No, but 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 1,600 seems like a lot of people to touch in a day, but let's say you give everybody five seconds. It's still possible. Five seconds, you can do 12 in a minute. So yeah, yeah it would only take a few, it would only take a matter of hours. Yeah, right? In, right. in three hours, you can do 1,600 people. And That's you know the crazy. king was not working an eight-hour day. No. You know, you know, this was like, this is the longest mass he has to do, and he is hating it. Yeah. He's like... He's like, hustle it up there. He's probably got three or four different, you know, handlers working the line. It's like Trump refusing to do the Easter egg roll or, or something. Like, what? This is, what? This takes 45 minutes? I'm not doing this. It's like King Charles now refusing to do all the things that his mom did. He's not opening any more supermarkets, I don't think. Well, he's quite old. You know, just because his 91-year-old mom could do it doesn't mean 71-year-old Charles should have to. The tradition, like so many things, died with the Stuarts. The Hanovers took over, and they were like, nine. Not not a German vibe. This is too popish. And I really think that was the objection, that like, like, we're getting rid of this kind of superstitious nonsense. We are austere Lutherans. And this Michaelmas stuff is BS. Yeah. Um, at Michaelmas, we shall have a candlelit tree and nothing else. I don't know what they did for Michaelmas. Um, but the Stuart less pre- and less. But the Stuart pretenders, whom as yeah, exactly to the present day, the Stuart pretenders, whom you know, as we know, as we were just talking about, spent the next few hundred years agitating, ch- <laughs> chilling around <laughs> Europe, hoping that their day would come. You know, uh, just hanging out in Bruges. Yep. We actually, you know what? We stayed at a hotel in Bruges last summer that still has a plaque on the outside because some deposed, I don't know, probably maybe Charles I during the interregnum or maybe Charles the well, no, it couldn't have been. Uh, stayed there? Like yeah, George Washington slept here? Yeah, I think it was Charles the First after the English Civil War, like lived in that hotel for huh. a few months. Um, like Bukowski. But I don't think they should brag about that. I mean, at least, you know, he's Charles I is a loser. It's well, like yeah, Confederate but, statues. Bukowski's but, a loser. But even, I mean... Sorry, men's rights guys. Even even a loser steward is still a steward. He's still a steward. Yeah. And so the steward pretenders in exile said, hey, I'm actually the king, not these Hanover cousins. And so they proved it by touching all the scrofulous that were brought before them. In Bruges. Or, or wherever. wherever. Or Ireland, wherever they were. Until as late as 1807, there were still, when the last steward... Uh, uh, claimant to the throne died he was still he was still uh touching dumb kevin's lesions every michaelmas really yeah and there but there continued to be scrofula scrofulous they're still scrofula there but scrofulous being the adjective but but uh like leprous but it's still it's still um it still exists to this day who's laying hands on those people no one uh, the doctors, yeah, with the doctors the with, the, with the antibiotic oh, prescriptions. We've but from 1807 until antibiotics. Yeah, there's another interregnum. Yeah, a hundred years of maybe. Uh, well, the thing is, scrofula did not return because I don't want to spoil anything. The king's touch was probably not actually curing the mal du roi at all. I see. It was just occasionally corresponding with 
remissions. Thank you for clarifying that. I mean, a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, how do I find a, a Stuart descendant to get him to to touch my swollen nodes. And the other uh, if you, listeners... If you, that, if you had a Stuart des, uh, descendant right here, would you ask him to touch your swollen nodes? Touch my swollen nodes, you Stuart descendant. <laughs> I would. I mean, if, among other things, I would ask. The amulets, many of them still survive. Um, you know, they, they became charms for, the, for those who held them, and then later family heirlooms. And finally, museum pieces. You can see Dr. Johnson's, uh, I think at the British Museum in London, uh, I, I tried to find some going at auction. You know, what would um, one of these golden angel coins that had been handled by James Stewart himself, what would that go for at auction today? They all got melted down in 1980 during the Hunt Brothers. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, I did find one selling for like only $1,600. What? That was the only one I could find. That seems like a reasonable price. It seems like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's historic 300-year-old Gold. Maybe the purity's not good. I don't know, but there can't be that many of them, right? Yeah, I guess it depends. If you are living in a um, in a spacious Upper West Side apartment, <clears throat> and you've got money to spend on something to put on the walls, I guess on the Upper West Side they're just a bunch of tapestries on the walls. It's Upper East Side where you might have a scrofulous gold coin. In a frame. Well, the coin's not going to be scrofulous. I'm sure after all these years. You think the tuberculosis bacterium is just hanging out there waiting, waiting to be fingered by a new owner? I mean, the coin was meant to hang around the neck, right? So the scrofula... But it doesn't seep in. Does it not? <laughs> Do you know so much about metallurgy that there's not room for scrofula in in between the gold molecules? It's true. If I was an alchemist, <clears> I would <throat> I would probably say that it had... If I was a homeopathy believer, I would say that it has... It, the gold remembers yes. all the scrofula that it was near. Tiny, tiny little scrofula molecules still clinging to it. Maybe the king is like a homeopathic remedy, you know? Maybe the idea is Well, if that, that were the case, the Germans would have really bought into it. <laughs> and that concludes the Royal Touch. Entry 1087.mt... 1902 certificate number 22347 in the omnibus futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era facebook twitter and instagram are archived at at omnibus project at is that how you spell at when it's a punctuation mark we need to have a way of signifying the word at versus the shift to at 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 i say at at all the time on this show for for star wars yeah and also because I say at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at at Ken Jennings and at at John Roderick. Our address, uh, uh, email address, that is, is theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can hang out with other futurelings on Discord and Discourse and Discombobulation, Disambulation, uh, and also Facebook. You can support the show, and please do, at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. We've we've now transitioned to doing the show once a week, and and it's a lively, uh, banter-filled show now, unlike the old shows, which were... (laughs) Unlike the previous death marches. Just like, oh, so boring. I think you made the point to me that the... um, Well, I guess I should say this later, but the addenda shows are now more valuable given that there's now one of them for every four or five omnibus entries, whereas before it would have been more like 
one for every 10 to 11. That's right. So if you have, are a longtime listener and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never subscribed to the Patreon. I never subscribed when there were two shows a week. Why would I subscribe when there are one? Because, because. you're missing, uh, you're missing like basically 20%, 25, no, what would it be? 18%. What is, it's 20%. I did not follow the beginning of this math. No, it's all right. It's all right. You're missing 20% of our shows now by not subscribing to Patreon. You miss 20% of the shots you don't take. That's right. Instead of, instead of 10% or whatever it was before. I'm bad at math. And if you... No, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to shame myself that way. I'm good at math. That's right. Yeah. You're, you don't have to be like that Barbie that said math is hard. No, I'm fine at math. I do math all the time. And it's mostly right. Speaking of Patreon, we should thank uh, Jack, whose contribution led him to suggest this Royal Touch piece episode. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Um, and uh, and finally, you can send us actual things in the mail at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you have a large package, uh, address it to 18336 <laughs> Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105, Apartment... Five five seven four four. The suite is the post office. The box is the apartment. Uh, that's Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. And I hear you over there uh, opening the mail. What do you, What do you got? What would you, good? What day of the? Do you get a lot of Christmas cards? Or are your friends not normal enough to send Christmas cards? I I still get a, a sizable stack. We, we get a ton despite never having done one ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are takers, mm-hmm. we're leeches mm-hmm. in the Christmas card economy. And the uh, the day we get the most Christmas cards, I would say, is like December twenty sixth. Like yeah, the day after Christmas is when they all show up. Do you get a lot that are that uh, have like long paragraphs describing what everybody did that year? Yeah, it's called the Christmas letter. Okay, okay. Do you call that long paragraphs describing what everybody did that year? I mean, most of the Christmas cards I get are are thinking of you from us and five pictures of the family. We uh, have- we get the Christmas you get the letter and we read the letter. It's, you know, uh, I don't know who any of your kids are, but Ooh, one of them went to, one of them went to, uh, Austin. Congrats. My cousin Paige really fills us in on what her family is doing. We got one kind of weirdly honest one this year. It was like, boy, it was really tough. What with all the mental health challenges. I was like, wow. <laughs> but we also, we also had a friend of ours who did a full 22 ending choose your own adventure book. How of of their excruciating. year, two of which actually end in death. Two of the endings end in death for you. The the for the, you the reader. Whoa! And I believe they listened to Omnibus. So I'm going to say that it was the best card we got this year. Yeah, sure. It was a picture perfect sure. replica of a Choose Your Own Adventure book. And I asked my I was um, I asked my wife I was like, what is this? Am I am I now a member of their family in the in the stories or which one? Mm. And she said, No, no, you just you just hang out with them and have mm. adventures. That's that's the best Christmas card idea I've ever heard. I texted you uh, right r- on or before Christmas Day, saying that um, you know we had around here we had decided that we were going to do a Secret Santa Christmas instead of a instead of you know a kind of orgy of presents, and um, and then at the last minute the orgy was canceled. No, I discovered oh n- no one is um, actually adhering to the Secret uh, Santa. The orgy's theme. back on the menu. The, the orgy's on the menu. And I was somewhat at a loss, like I didn't have any stocking stuffers for everybody. I came down here and I went through the omnibus <laughs> mailbag, and there were all kinds of cool little gifts. And so I 
I took all these weird little gifts and you put them. Gifted. I put them around. You know that we got that that bag of of healing crystals, and I actually took all the different crystals and separated them out and gave each person a bag of healing crystals that was <laughs> personalized al- to their yeah that was aligned with their sh- with the, their the chakra they needed to be massaged. So thoughtful. But what well, the problem was is that my daughter uh, comes down to our bunker and plays. And she had gone through the omnibus mailbox. So every time someone opened one of these presents, she was like, hey, <laughs> until, I had to, <laughs> until I had to start giving her the, the eye, like, shush, shush. Had she been told they were hers earlier in the year? Well, she had definitely adopted some of them. But. <laughs> well, the reason why I mentioned Christmas cards is because even here in the new year, we are still receiving. These could have been sent on time. Uh, they'd just been sitting in apartment number, uh, what was it? 55744. 55744. Sweet 105. We got a Jurassic Park-themed Christmas card nice. from the Comistra family. A holiday cheer uh, 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 finds a way. Um, we got uh, Sonia and her dog's year in review. It's a Christmas letter in bullet points form. Do you endorse this? I do. Uh, n- ask me for a number, and I'll tell you what the bullet point was. Uh, ask Sorry, you? Sorry, suggest a number from Eight. one to five. One to five. Three. Uh, she saw New Kids on the Blocking concert twice. No, she did not. You must have to travel. There's no way they would did two nights in one place or did yeah, two tours. But, you know, they could do two nights in Ohio. <laughs> and we got a Lego-themed card from the Donahues. Oh, it looks just like a Lego box. I like it. Omnibus gets us through the year. Merry Thanks. Brickmas. Merry late Brickmas to all. And then um, Mike, Michelle, or possibly Michele, because they say they wish us a Buon Natale, um, Michaela suggested the Batavia entry and because you like coffee and chocolate has sent you a, amazing Italian candies not sold in the US possibly because they're illegal called pocket coffee they are chocolates that are actually just filled with liquid coffee oh, do not yes. do so do not take a bite you are warned in the letter in the cover letter okay don't take a bite don't, if you take a bite coffee will just go everywhere that sounds amazing is that what you want well i mean i'll have to get in the bath first but <laughs> put it in your mouth okay. and then take, take a, a bite. bite yeah and uh, it's like a boom explosion of coffee in your mouth i see why you don't want this i guess i mean i could kind of use one of these right now honestly pocket coffee i don't know why it's i guess I if you put them in my pocket either no they would melt that'd be gross they well, would here, melt in your mouth on your hands. toss them over here are you going to try them on air here i'm a little bit tweaky already you haven't had your Diet Dr. Pepper yet, but wow, this it's a small box, but you can feel the coffee. It's very it. dense. It's it full is. of uh it's full of the the weight of uh Italian uh, emotion and grief and loss and, and joy. Il gusto del chiocciato. Chiocciato. The taste of something. Chiocciolorado. Chiocciolorado. Uh, <laughs> Incontra l'aroma del buon caffè. Find the taste of good coffee. Find it. Yes, I'm looking for it. Encounter it. it right here in Pocket Coffee. That's that awesome. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus 